0: Chapter 15 of Lives of the Engineers, George and Robert Stevenson This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Andy Minter Lives of the Engineers, George and Robert Stevenson By Samuel Smiles Chapter 15 George Stevenson's Coal Mines Appears at Mechanics Institute's His Opinion on Railway Speeds, Atmospheric System, Railway Mania, Visits to Belgium and Spain. While George Stevenson was engaged in carrying on the works of the Midland Railway in the neighbourhood of Chesterfield, several seams of coal were cut through in the Claycross Tunnel, and it occurred to him that if mines were opened out there, the railway would provide the means of a ready sale for the article in the Midland counties, and as far south as even the metropolis itself. At a time when everybody else was sceptical as to the possibility of coals being carried from the Midland Counties to London, and sold there at a price to compete with those which were seaborne, he declared his firm conviction that the time was fast approaching when the London market would be regularly supplied with North Country coals led by railway. One of the greatest advantages of railways, in his opinion, was that they would bring iron and coal, the staple products of the country, to the doors of all England. The strength of Britain, he would say, lies in her iron and coal beds, and the locomotive is destined, above all other agencies, to bring it forth. The Lord Chancellor now sits upon a bag of wool, but wool has long ceased to be emblematical of the staple commodity of England. He ought rather to sit upon a bag of coals, though it might not prove quite so comfortable a seat. Then think of the Lord Chancellor being addressed as the noble and learned lord on the coal sack. I am afraid it wouldn't answer after all to one gentleman he said we want from the coal mining the iron producing and manufacturing districts a great railway for the carriage of these valuable products we want if i may say a stream of steam running directly through the country from the north to london and from other similar districts to london speed is not so much an object as utility and cheapness it will not do to mix up the heavy merchandise and coal trains with the passenger trains "'Coal and most kinds of goods can wait, but passengers will not. "'A less perfect road and less expensive works "'will do well enough for coal trains if run at a low speed, "'and if the line be flat it is not of much consequence "'whether it be direct or not. "'Whenever you put passenger trains on a line, "'all the other trains must be run at high speeds "'to keep out of their way. "'But coal trains run at high speeds pull the road to pieces, "'besides causing large expenditure in locomotive power.' and I doubt very much whether they will pay after all. But a succession of long coal-trains, if run from ten to fourteen miles an hour, would pay very well. Thus the Stockton and Darlington Company made a larger profit when running coal at low speeds at a halfpenny per ton per mile than they have been able to do since they put on their fast passenger trains, when everything must needs be run faster, and a much larger proportion of the gross receipts is absorbed by working expenses.' In advocating these views, Mr. Stevenson was considerably ahead of his time, and although he did not live to see his anticipations fully realised as to the supply of the London coal market, he was nevertheless the first to point out, and to some extent to prove, the practicability of establishing a profitable coal trade, by railway, between the northern counties and the metropolis. So long, however, as the traffic was conducted on main passenger lines at comparatively high speeds, It was found that the expenditure on tear and wear of road and locomotive power, not to mention the increased risk of carrying on the first-class passenger traffic with which it was mixed up, necessarily left a very small margin of profit, and hence Mr. Stevenson was in the habit of urging the propriety of constructing a railway which should be exclusively devoted to goods and mineral traffic, run at low speeds, as the only condition on which a large railway traffic of that sort could be profitably conducted.' Having induced some of his Liverpool friends to join him in a coal-mining adventure at Chesterfield, a lease was taken of the Clay Cross estate, then for sale, and operations were shortly after begun. At a subsequent period Mr. Stevenson extended his coal-mining operations in the same neighbourhood, and in 1841 he himself entered into a contract with the owners of land in adjoining townships for the working of the coal thereunder, and pits were opened on the Tapton estate on an extensive scale. About the same time he erected great lime-works close to the Ambergate station of the Midland Railway, from which, when in full operation, he was able to turn out upwards of two hundred tonnes a day. The limestone was brought on a tramway from the village of Critch, two or three miles distant, the coal being supplied from his adjoining Claycross colliery. The works were on a scale such as had not before been attempted by any private individual engaged in a similar trade, and we believe they proved very successful. Tapton House was included in the lease of one of the collieries, and as it was conveniently situated, being, as it were, a central point on the Midland Railway, from which he could readily proceed north or south, on his journeys of inspection of the various lines then under construction in the Midland and northern counties, he took up his residence there, and it continued his home until the close of his life. Tapton House is a large roomy brick mansion, "'beautifully situated amidst woods on a commanding eminence "'about a mile to the north-east of the town of Chesterfield. "'Green fields dotted with fine trees "'slope away from the house in all directions. "'The surrounding country is undulating and highly picturesque. "'North and south the eye ranges over a vast extent of lovely scenery, "'and on the west, looking over the town of Chesterfield "'with its church and crooked spire, "'the extensive range of the Derbyshire hills bounds the distance.' The Midland Railway skirts the western edge of the park in a deep rock cutting, and the shrill whistle of the locomotive sounds near at hand as the trains speed past. The gardens and pleasure grounds adjoining the house were in a very neglected state when Mr. Stevenson first went to Tapton, and he promised himself, when he had secured rest and leisure from business, that he would put a new face upon both. The first improvement he made was cutting a woodland footpath up the hillside, by which he, at the same time, "'added a beautiful feature to the park "'and secured a shorter road to the Chesterfield Station, "'but it was some years before he found time "'to carry into effect his contemplated improvements "'in the adjoining gardens and pleasure-grounds. "'He had so long been accustomed to laborious pursuits "'and felt himself still so full of work "'that he could not at once settle down into the habit "'of quietly enjoying the fruits of his industry. "'He had no difficulty in usefully employing his time, Besides directing the mining operations at Clay Cross, the establishment of the lime kilns at Ambergate, and the construction of the extensive railway still in progress, he occasionally paid visits to Newcastle, where his locomotive manufactory was now in full work, and the proprietors were reaping the advantage of his early foresight in an abundant measure of prosperity. One of his most interesting visits to the place was in 1838, on the occasion of the meeting of the british association there when he acted as one of the vice-presidents in the section of mechanical science extraordinary changes had occurred in his own fortunes as well as in the face of the country since he first appeared before a scientific body in newcastle the members of the literary and philosophical institute to submit his safety lamp for their examination twenty-three years had passed over his head full of honest work of manful struggle and the humble colliery-engine-right of the name of Stevenson had achieved an almost worldwide reputation as a public benefactor. His fellow-townsmen, therefore, could not hesitate to recognise his merits and do honour to his name. During the sittings of the association, Mr. Stevenson took the opportunity of paying a visit to Killingworth, accompanied by some of the distinguished servants whom he numbered among his friends. He there, pointed out to them, with a degree of honest pride, the cottage in which he had lived for so many years, showed what parts of it had been his own handiwork, and told them the story of the sundial over the door, describing the study and the labour it had cost him and his son to calculate its dimensions and fix it in its place. The dial had been serenely numbering the hours through the busy years that had elapsed since that humble dwelling had been his home, during which the Killingworth locomotive had become a great working power and its contriver had established the railway system, which was now rapidly becoming extended in all parts of the world. About the same time, his services were very much in request at the meetings of mechanics institutes, held throughout the northern counties. From an early period in his history, he had taken an active interest in these institutions. While residing in Newcastle in 1824, shortly after his locomotive foundry had been started in Fourth Street, he presided at a public meeting held in that town for the purpose of establishing a Mechanics Institute. The meeting was held, but as George Stevenson was a man comparatively unknown even in Newcastle at that time, his name failed to secure an influential attendance. Among those who addressed the meeting on the occasion was Joseph Locke, then his pupil, and afterwards his rival as an engineer. The local papers scarcely noticed the proceedings, yet the Mechanics Institute was founded and struggled into existence. Years passed, and it was now felt to be an honour to secure Mr. Stevenson's presence at any public meetings held for the promotion of popular education. Among the Mechanics Institutes in his immediate neighbourhood at Tapton were those of Belper and Chesterfield, and at their soirees he was a frequent and welcome visitor. On these occasions he loved to tell his auditors of the difficulties which had early beset him through want of knowledge— and of the means by which he had overcome them. His grand text was Persevere, and there was manhood in the very word. On more than one occasion, the author had the pleasure of listening to George Stevenson's homely but forcible addresses at the annual soirees of the Leeds Mechanics Institute. He was always an immense favourite with his audiences there. His personal appearance was greatly in his favour. A handsome, ruddy, expressive face lit up by bright dark blue eyes, prepared one for his earnest words when he stood up to speak and the cheers had subsided which invariably hailed his rising. He was not glib, but he was very impressive, and who, so well as he, could serve as a guide to the working man in his endeavours after higher knowledge? His early life had been all struggle, encounter with difficulty, groping in the dark after greater light, but always earnestly and perseveringly. His words were therefore all the more weighty, since he spoke from the fullness of his own experience. Nor did he remain a mere inactive spectator of the improvements in railway working which increasing experience from day to day suggested. He continued to contrive improvements in the locomotive, and to mature his invention of the carriage-brake. When examined before the Select Committee on Railways in 1841, his mind seems principally to have been impressed with the necessity which existed for adopting a system of self-acting brakes, stating that, in his opinion, this was the most important arrangement that could be provided for increasing the safety of railway travelling. I believe, he said, that if self-acting brakes were put upon every carriage, scarcely any accident could take place. His plan consisted in employing the momentum of the running train to throw his proposed brakes into action, immediately on the moving power of the engine being checked. He would also have these brakes under the control of the guard, by means of a connecting line running along the whole length of the train, by which they should at once be thrown out of gear when necessary. At the same time he suggested, as an additional means of safety, that the signals of the line should be self-acting, and worked by the locomotives as they passed along the railway. He considered the adoption of this plan of so much importance that, with a view to the public safety, he would even have it enforced upon railway companies by the legislature. At the same time he was of opinion that it was in the interest of the companies themselves to adopt the plan, as it would save great wear and tear of engines, carriages, tenders and brake-vans, besides greatly diminishing the risk of accidents upon railways.' While before the same committee, he took the opportunity of stating his views with reference to railway speed, about which wild ideas were then afloat, one gentleman of celebrity having publicly expressed the opinion that a speed of a hundred miles an hour was practicable in railway travelling. Not many years had passed since George Stevenson had been pronounced insane for stating his conviction that twelve miles an hour could be performed by the locomotive But now that he had established the fact, and greatly exceeded that speed, he was thought behind the age, because he recommended the rate to be limited to forty miles an hour. He said, "'I do not like either forty or fifty miles an hour upon any line. I think it is an unnecessary speed, and if there is danger upon a railway, it is high velocity that creates it. I should say no railway ought to exceed forty miles an hour on the most favourable gradient, but upon a curved line the speed ought not to exceed twenty-four or twenty-five miles an hour. He had, indeed, constructed for the Great Western Railway an engine capable of running fifty miles an hour with a load, and eighty miles without one, but he never was in favour of a hurricane speed of this sort, believing it could only be accomplished at a necessary increase, both of danger and of expense. It is true, he observed on other occasions, I have said the locomotive engine might be made to travel a hundred miles an hour, but I always put a qualification on this, namely as to what speed would best suit the public. The public may, however, be unreasonable, and fifty or sixty miles an hour is an unreasonable speed. Long before railway travelling became general, I said to my friends that there was no limit to the speed of the locomotive, providing the works could be made to stand. But there are limits to the strength of iron, whether it be manufactured into rails or locomotives, and there is a point at which both rails and tyres must break. Every increase of speed, by increasing the strain upon the road and the rolling-stock, brings us nearer to that point. At thirty miles a slighter road will do, and less perfect rolling-stock may be run upon it with safety. But if you increase the speed by, say, ten miles, then everything must be greatly strengthened.' "'You must have heavier engines, heavier and better fastened rails, "'and all your working expenses will be immediately increased. "'I think I know enough of mechanics to know where to stop. "'I know that a pound will weigh a pound, "'and that no more should be put upon an iron rail than it will bear. "'If you could ensure perfect iron, perfect rails, and perfect locomotives, "'I grant fifty miles an hour or more might be run with safety on a level railway.' But then you must not forget that iron, even the best, will tire, and with constant use will become more and more liable to break at the weakest point, perhaps where there is a secret flaw that the eye cannot detect. Then look at the rubbishy rails now manufactured on the contract system, some of them little better than cast metal. Indeed, I have seen rails break merely on being thrown from the truck onto the ground.' "'How is it possible for such rails to stand a twenty- or thirty-ton engine "'dashing over them at the speed of fifty miles an hour?' "'No, no,' he would conclude. "'I am in favour of low speeds because they are safe, "'and because they are economical, "'and you may rely upon it that beyond a certain point, "'with every increase of speed, "'there is an increase in the element of danger.' When railways became the subject of popular discussion, many new and unsound theories were started with reference to them, which Stevenson opposed as calculated, in his opinion, to bring discredit on the locomotive system. One of these was with reference to what were called undulating lines. Among others, Dr. Lardner, who had originally been somewhat sceptical about the powers of the locomotive now promulgated the idea that a railway constructed with rising and falling gradients would be practically as easy to work as a line perfectly level. Mr. Badnell went even beyond him, for he held that an undulating railway was much better than a level one for purposes of working. For a time this theory found favour, and the undulating system was extensively adopted, but Mr. Stevenson never ceased to inveigh against it and experience has amply proved that his judgment was correct. His practice, from the beginning of his career until the end of it, was to secure a road as nearly as possible on a level, following the courses of the valleys and the natural line of the country, preferring to go round a hill rather than to tunnel under it or carry his railway over it, and often making a considerable circuit to secure good, workable gradients.' he studied to lay out his lines so that long trains of minerals and merchandise, as well as passengers, might be hauled along them at the least possible expenditure of locomotive power. He had long before ascertained, by careful experiments at Killingworth, that the engine expends half of its power in overcoming a rising gradient of one in two hundred and sixty, which is about twenty feet in the mile, and that when the gradient is so steep as one in a hundred, not less than three-fourths of its power is sacrificed in ascending the acclivity. He never forgot the valuable practical lesson taught him by the early trials which he had made and registered long before the advantages of railways had been recognised. He saw clearly that the longer flat line must eventually prove superior to the shorter line of steep gradients as respected its paying qualities. He urged that, after all, the power of the locomotive was but limited— and although he and his son had done more than any other men to increase its working capacity, it provoked him to find that every improvement made in it was neutralised by the steep gradients which the new school of engineers were setting it to overcome. On one occasion, when Robert Stevenson stated before a parliamentary committee that every successive improvement in the locomotive was being rendered virtually nugatory by the difficult and almost impracticable gradients proposed on many of the new lines, his father, on his leaving the witness-box, went up to him and said, "'Robert, you never spoke truer words than those in all your life.' To this it must be added that, in urging these views, Mr. Stevenson was strongly influenced by commercial considerations. He had no desire to build up his reputation at the expense of railway shareholders, nor to obtain engineering eclat by making ducks and drakes of their money— He was persuaded that, in order to secure the practical success of railways, they must be so laid out as not only to prove of decided public utility, but also to be worked economically, and to the advantage of their proprietors. They were not government roads, but private ventures, in fact commercial speculations. He therefore endeavoured to render them financially profitable, and he repeatedly declared that if he did not believe they could be made to pay, he would have nothing to do with them he was not influenced by the sordid consideration of what he could make out of any company that employed him. Indeed, in many cases he voluntarily gave up his claim to remuneration, where the promoters of schemes which he thought praiseworthy had suffered serious loss. Thus, when the first application was made to Parliament for the Chester and Birkenhead Railway Bill, the promoters were defeated. They repeated their application on the understanding that, in the event of their succeeding, the engineer and surveyor were to be paid their costs in respect of the defeated measure. The bill was successful, and to several parties their costs were paid. Mr. Stevenson's amounted to eight hundred pounds, and he very nobly said, "'You have had an expensive career in Parliament. You've had a great struggle. You're a young company. You cannot afford to pay me this amount of money. I will reduce it to two hundred pounds, and I will not ask you for that two hundred pounds until your shares are at twenty pounds premium.' For whatever may be the reverses you will go through, I am satisfied I shall live to see the day when your shares will be worth £20 premium, and when I can legally and honourably claim that £200. We may add that the shares did eventually rise to the premium specified, and the engineer was no loser by his generous conduct in the transaction.' Another novelty of the time, with which George Stevenson had to contend, was the substitution of atmospheric pressure for locomotive steam-power in the working of railways. The idea of obtaining motion by means of atmospheric pressure is said to have originated with Dennis Papin more than a hundred and fifty years ago, but it slept until revived in 1810 by Mr. Medhurst, who published a pamphlet to prove the practicability of carrying letters and goods by air in eighteen twenty four mr valence of brighton took out a patent for projecting passengers through a tube large enough to contain a train of carriages the tube being previously exhausted of its atmospheric air the same idea was afterwards taken up in eighteen thirty five by mr pincus an ingenious american scientific gentlemen dr lardner and mr clegg amongst others advocated the plan and an association was formed to carry it into effect "'Shares were created, and eighteen thousand pounds raised, and a model apparatus was exhibited in London. Mr. Vignol took his friend Stevenson to see the model, and after carefully examining it, he observed emphatically, "'It won't do. It's only the fixed engines and ropes over again in another form, and, to tell you the truth, I don't think this rope of wind will answer so well as the rope of wire did.' He did not think the principle would stand the test of practice, and he objected to the mode of employing the principle. After all, it was only a modification of the stationary engine plan, and every day's experience was proving that fixed engines could not compete with locomotives in point of efficiency and economy. He stood by the locomotive engine, and subsequent experience proved that he was right. Messrs Clegg and Samuda, afterwards in 1840, patented their plan of an atmospheric railway, and they publicly tested its working on an unfinished portion of the West London Railway. The results of the experiment were so satisfactory that the directors of the Dublin and Kingstown line adopted it between Kingstown and Dalkey. The London and Croydon Company also adopted the atmospheric principle, and their line was opened in 1845. The ordinary mode of applying the power was to lay between the line of rails a pipe, in which a large piston was inserted, and attached by a shaft to the framework of a carriage. The propelling power was the ordinary pressure of the atmosphere acting against the piston in the tube on one side, a vacuum being created in the tube on the other side of the piston by the working of a stationary engine. Great was the popularity of the atmospheric system, and still George Stevenson said, "'It won't do. It's but a gimcrack." Engineers of distinction said he was prejudiced, and that he looked upon the locomotive as a pet child of his own. "'Wait a little,' he replied, "'and you will see that I am right.' It was generally supposed that the locomotive system was about to be snuffed out. "'Not so fast,' said Stevenson. "'Let us wait to see if it will pay.' He never believed it would— It was ingenious, clever, scientific, and all that, but railways were commercial enterprises, not toys, and if the atmospheric railway could not work to a profit, it would not do. Considered in this light, he even went so far as to call it a great humbug. "'Nothing will beat the locomotive,' said he, "'for efficiency in all weathers, for economy in drawing loads of average weight, and for power and speed as occasion may require.' The atmospheric system was fairly and fully tried, and it was found wanting. It was admitted to be an exceedingly elegant mode of applying power, its devices were very skilful, and its mechanism was most ingenious, but it was costly, irregular in action, and in particular kinds of weather, not to be depended upon. At best it was but a modification of the stationary engine system, and experience proved it to be so expensive that it was shortly after— entirely abandoned in favour of locomotive power. One of the remarkable results of the system of railway locomotion which George Stevenson had, by his persevering labours, mainly contributed to establish, was the outbreak of railway mania towards the close of his professional career. The success of the first main lines of railway naturally led to their extension into many new districts, but a strongly speculative tendency soon began to display itself, which contained in it the elements of great danger. The extension of railways had, up to the year 1844, been mainly effected by men of the commercial classes, and the shareholders in them principally belonged to the manufacturing districts, the capitalists of the metropolis as yet holding aloof, and prophesying disaster to all concerned in railway projects. But when the lugubrious anticipations of the city men was found to be so entirely falsified by the results— when, after the lapse of years, it was ascertained that railway traffic rapidly increased, and dividends steadily improved, a change came over the spirit of the London capitalists. They then invested largely in railways, the shares in which became a leading branch of business on the stock exchange, and the prices of some rose to nearly double their original value. A stimulus was thus given to the projection of further lines, the shares in most of which came out at a premium— and became the subject of immediate traffic. A reckless spirit of gambling set in, which completely changed the character and objects of railway enterprise. The public, outside the stock exchange, became also infected, and many persons utterly ignorant of railways, knowing and caring nothing about their national uses, but hungering and thirsting after premiums, rushed eagerly into the vortex. They applied for allotments, and subscribed for shares in lines of the engineering character or probable traffic of which they knew nothing. Providing they could but obtain allotments which they could sell at a premium, and put the profit—in many cases the only capital they possessed—into their pocket, it was enough for them. The mania was not confined to the precincts of the stock exchange, but infected all ranks. It embraced merchants and manufacturers, gentry and shopkeepers, clerks in public offices, and loungers at the clubs. Noble lords were pointed at as stags— There were even clergymen who were characterized as bulls, and amiable ladies who had the reputation of bears in the share markets. The few quiet men, who remained uninfluenced by the speculation of the time, were, in not a few cases, even reproached for doing injustice to their families in declining to help themselves from the stores of wealth that were poured out on all sides. Folly and knavery were for a time completely in the ascendant. The sharpers of society were let loose and jobbers and schemers became more and more plentiful. They threw out railway schemes as lures to catch the unwary. They fed the mania with a constant succession of new projects. The railway papers became loaded with their advertisements. The post-office was scarcely able to distribute the multitude of prospectuses and circulars which they issued. For a time, their popularity was immense. They rose like froth into the upper heights of society and the flunkey Fitzplush, by virtue of his supposed wealth, sat among peers and was idolised. Then was the harvest time of scheming lawyers, parliamentary agents, engineers, surveyors, and traffic-takers, who were ready to take up any railway scheme, however desperate, and to prove any amount of traffic, even where none existed. The traffic, in the credulity of their dupes, was, however, the great fact that mainly concerned them and of the profitable character of which there could be no doubt. Mr. Stevenson was anxiously entreated to lend his name to prospectuses during the railway mania, but he invariably refused. He held aloof from the headlong folly of the hour, and endeavoured to check it, but in vain. Had he been less scrupulous and given his countenance to the numerous projects about which he was consulted, he might, without any trouble, have thus secured enormous gains— but he had no desire to accumulate a fortune without labour and without honour. He himself never speculated in shares. When he was satisfied as to the merits of any undertaking, he subscribed for a certain amount of capital in it, and held on, neither buying nor selling. At a dinner of the Leeds and Bradford directors at Benriding in October 1844, before the mania had reached its height, he warned those present against the prevalent disposition towards railway speculation. It was, he said, like walking on a piece of ice with shallows and deeps. The shallows were frozen over, and they would carry, but it required great caution to get over the deeps. He was satisfied that in the course of the next year many would step onto places not strong enough to carry them, and would get into the deeps. They would be taking shares, and afterwards be unable to pay the calls upon them. Yorkshiremen were reckoned clever men, and his advice to them was to stick together and promote communication in their own neighbourhood, not to go abroad with their speculations. If any had done so, he advised them to get their money back as fast as they could, for if they did not, they would not get it at all. He informed the company at the same time of his earliest holding of railway shares. It was in the Stockton and Darlington Railway, and the number he held was three a very large capital for him to possess at the time. But a Stockton friend was anxious to possess a share, and he sold him one at a premium of thirty-three shillings. He supposed he had been about the first man in England to sell a railway share at a premium. During 1845 his son's offices in Great George Street, Westminster, were crowded with persons of various conditions seeking interviews, presenting very much the appearance of the levee of a Minister of State, The burly figure of Mr. Hudson, the Railway King, surrounded by an admiring group of followers, was often to be seen there, and a still more interesting person, in the estimation of many, was George Stevenson, dressed in black, his coat of a somewhat old-fashioned cut, with square pockets in the tails. He wore a white neckcloth, and a large bunch of seals was suspended from his watch-ribbon. Altogether he presented an appearance of health, intelligence, and good humour— that rejoiced one to look upon in that sordid, selfish, and eventually ruinous saturnalia of railway speculation. Powers were granted by Parliament in 1843 to construct not less than 2,883 miles of new railways in Britain, at an expenditure of about 44 million sterling. Yet the mania was not appeased, for in the following session of 1846, Applications were made to Parliament for powers to raise £389 million of sterling for the construction of further lines, and powers were actually conceded for forming 4,790 miles, including 60 miles of tunnel, at a cost of about £120 million sterling. During this session Mr Stephenson appeared as engineer for only one new line, the Buxton, Macclesfield, Congleton and Crewe Railway, a line in which, as coal-owner, he was personally interested, and of three branch lines in connection with existing companies for which he had long acted as engineer. At the same time, all the leading professional men were fully occupied, some of them appearing as consulting engineers for upwards of thirty lines each. One of the features of the mania was the rage for direct lines, which everywhere displayed itself. There were direct Manchester, direct Exeter, direct York, and indeed new direct lines between most of the large towns. The Marquis of Bristol, speaking in favour of the direct Norwich and London project, at a public meeting at Haverhill, said, if necessary, they might make a tunnel beneath his very drawing-room, rather than be defeated in their undertaking. And the Reverend F. Litchfield, at a meeting in Banbury on the subject of a line to that town, said he had laid down for himself a limit to his approbation of railways, at least of such as approached the neighbourhood with which he was connected, and that limit was that he did not wish them to approach any nearer to him than to run through his bedroom with the bedpost for a station. How different was the spirit which influenced these noble lords and gentlemen but a few years before. The House of Commons became thoroughly influenced by the prevailing excitement. Even the Board of Trade began to favour the views of the Fast School of Engineers in their report on the lines projected in the Manchester and Leeds district. They promulgated some remarkable views respecting gradients, declaring themselves in favour of the undulating system. They there stated that lines of an undulating character, which have gradients of one in seventy or eighty distributed over them in short lengths, may be positively better lines i e more susceptible of cheap and expeditious working than others which have nothing steeper than one in a hundred or one in a hundred and twenty they concluded by reporting in favour of the line which exhibited the worst gradients and the sharpest curves chiefly on the ground that it could be constructed for less money sir robert peel took occasion to advert to this report in the house of commons on the fourth of march following as containing a novel and highly important view on the subject of gradients which he was certain never could have been taken by any committee of the house of commons however intelligent and he might have added that the more intelligent the less likely they were to arrive at any such conclusion when mr Stevenson saw this report of the premier's speech in the newspapers of the following morning he went forthwith to his son and asked him to write a letter to sir robert peel on the subject He saw clearly that if these views were adopted, the utility and economy of railways would be seriously curtailed. These Members of Parliament, said he, are now as much disposed to exaggerate the powers of the locomotive as they were to underestimate them but a few years ago. Robert accordingly wrote a letter for his father's signature, embodying the views which he so strongly entertained as to the importance of flat gradients— and referring to the experiments conducted by him many years before, in proof of the great loss of working power which was incurred on a line as steep, as compared with easy gradients. It was clear, from the tone of Sir Robert Peel's speech in a subsequent debate, that he had carefully read and considered Mr. Stevenson's practical observations on the subject, though it did not appear that he had come to any definite conclusion thereon, further than that he strongly approved of the Trent Valley Railway, by which Tamworth would be placed upon a direct main line of communication. The result of the labours of Parliament was a tissue of legislative bungling, involving enormous loss to the public. Railway bills were granted in heaps. 272 additional acts were passed in 1846. Some authorised the construction of lines running almost parallel to existing railways, in order to afford the public the benefits of unrestricted competition. Locomotives and atmospheric lines, broad-gauge and narrow-gauge lines were granted without hesitation. Committees decided, without judgment and without discrimination. It was a scramble for bills, in which the most unscrupulous were the most successful. Among the many ill effects of the mania, one of the worst was that it introduced a low tone of morality into railway transactions. The bad spirit which had been evoked by it unhappily extended to the commercial classes— and many of the most flagrant swindles of recent times had their origin in the year 1845. Those who had suddenly gained large sums without labour, and also without honour, were too ready to enter upon courses of the wildest extravagance, and a false style of living shortly arose, the poisonous influence of which extended through all classes. Men began to look upon railways as instruments to job with— persons sometimes possessing information respecting railways but more frequently possessing none got upon boards for the purpose of promoting their individual objects often in a very unscrupulous manner landowners to promote branch lines through their property speculators in shares to trade upon the exclusive information which they obtained while some directors were appointed through the influence mainly of solicitors contractors or engineers who used them as tools to serve their own ends. In this way, the unfortunate proprietors were, in many cases, betrayed, and their property was shamefully squandered, much to the discredit of the railway system. While the mania was at its height in England, railways were also being extended abroad, and George Stevenson was requested on several occasions to give the benefit of his advice to the directors of foreign undertakings. One of the most agreeable of these excursions was to Belgium in 1845. His special object was to examine the proposed line of the Sambre and Meuse railway, for which a concession had been granted by the Belgian legislature. Arrived on the ground, he went carefully over the entire length of the proposed line, from Convins, the forest of Ardennes, and Rocrois, across the French frontier, examining the bearings of the coalfield, the slate, and marble quarries, and the numerous iron mines in existence between the sambre and the meuse as well as carefully exploring the ravines which extended through the district in order to satisfy himself that the best possible route had been selected mr Stevenson was delighted with the novelty of the journey the beauty of the scenery and the industry of the population his companions were entertained by his ample and varied stores of practical information on all subjects and his conversation was full of reminiscences of his youth on which he always delighted to dwell when in the society of his more intimate friends. The journey was varied by a visit to the coal-mines near Jemap, where Stevenson examined with interest the mode adopted by the Belgian miners of draining the pits, inspecting their engines and braking machines so familiar to him in early life. The engineers of Belgium took the opportunity of Mr. Stevenson's visit to their country to invite him to a magnificent banquet at Brussels, the public hall in which they entertained him was gaily decorated with flags, prominent among which was the Union Jack, in honour of their distinguished guest. A handsome marble pedestal, ornamented with his bust, crowned with laurels, occupied one end of the room. The chair was occupied by Monsieur masuy the chief director of the National Railways of Belgium, and the most eminent scientific men of the kingdom were present. Their reception of the Father of Railways was of the most enthusiastic description. Mr. Stephenson was greatly pleased with the entertainment. Not the least interesting incident of the evening was his observing, when the dinner was about half over, a model of a locomotive engine placed upon the centre table, under a triumphal arch. Turning suddenly to his friend Sopwith, he exclaimed, "'Do you see the rocket?' The compliment thus paid him was perhaps more prized than all the encomiums of the evening.' The next day, April fifth, King Leopold invited him to a private interview at the palace. Accompanied by Mr. Sopwith, he proceeded to Laken and was very cordially received by his majesty. The king immediately entered into familiar conversation with him, discussing the railway project which had been the object of his visit to Belgium, and then the structure of the Belgian coal fields. His Majesty explaining his sense of the great importance of economy in a fuel which had become indispensable to the comfort and well-being of society, which was the basis of all manufactures and the vital power of railway locomotion. The subject was always a favourite one with Mr. Stevenson, and, encouraged by the King, he proceeded to describe to him the geological structure of Belgium, the original formation of coal, its subsequent elevation by volcanic forces, and the vast amount of denudation. In describing the coal-beds, he used his hat as a sort of model to illustrate his meaning, and the eyes of the king were fixed upon it, as he proceeded with his interesting description. The conversation then passed to the rise and progress of trade and manufactures, Mr. Stevenson pointing out how closely they everywhere followed the coal, being mainly dependent upon it, as they were, for their very existence.' The King seemed greatly pleased with the interview, and at its close expressed himself obliged by the interesting information which the engineer had communicated. Shaking hands cordially with both the gentlemen, and wishing them success in their important undertakings, he bade them adieu. As they were leaving the palace, Mr. Stevenson, bethinking him of the model by which he had just been illustrating the Belgian coal-fields, said to his friend, "'By the bye, Sopwith!' "'I was afraid the king would see the inside of my hat. "'It's a shocking bad one.' "'Little could George Stevenson, when brakesman at a coal-pit, "'have dreamt that in the course of his life "'he should be admitted to an interview with a monarch "'and describe to him the manner in which the geological foundations "'of his kingdom had been laid. "'Mr. Stevenson paid a second visit to Belgium in the course of the same year, "'on the business of the West Flanders Railway, and he had scarcely returned from it, ere he made arrangements to proceed to Spain, for the purpose of examining and reporting upon a scheme, then on foot, for constructing the Royal North of Spain Railway. A concession had been made by the Spanish government of a line of railway from Madrid to the Bay of Biscay, and a numerous staff of engineers was engaged in surveying it. The directors of the company had declined making the necessary deposits until more favourable terms had been secured and Sir Joshua Walmsley, on their part, was about to visit Spain and press the government on the subject. Mr. Stevenson, whom he consulted, was alive to the difficulties of the office which Sir Joshua was induced to undertake, and offered to be his companion and adviser on the occasion, declining to receive any recompense beyond the simple expenses of the journey. He could only arrange to be absent for six weeks, and set out from England about the middle of September 1845." The party was joined at Paris by Mr. Mackenzie, the contractor for the Orléans and Tours Railway, then in course of construction, who took them over the works and accompanied them as far as Tours. They soon reached the great chain of the Pyrenees and crossed over into Spain. It was on a Sunday evening, after a long day's toilsome journey through the mountains, that the party suddenly found themselves in one of those beautiful secluded valleys lying amidst the western Pyrenees, A small hamlet lay before them, consisting of some thirty or forty houses and a fine old church. The sun was low on the horizon, and under the wide porch beneath the shadow of the church were seated nearly all the inhabitants of the place. They were dressed in their holiday attire. The bright bits of red and amber colour in the dresses of the women, and the gay sashes of the men, formed a striking picture, on which the travellers gazed in silent admiration. It was something entirely novel and unexpected— Beside the villagers sat two venerable old men, whose canonical hats indicated their quality as village pastors. Two groups of young women and children were dancing outside the porch to the accompaniment of a simple pipe, and within a hundred yards of them some of the youths of the village were disporting themselves in athletic exercises, the whole being carried on beneath the fostering care of the old church and with the sanction of its ministers. It was a beautiful scene, and deeply moved the travellers as they approached the principal group. The villagers greeted them courteously, supplied their present wants, and pressed upon them some fine melons brought from their adjoining gardens. Mr. Stevenson used afterwards to look back upon that simple scene, and speak of it as one of the most charming pastorals he had ever witnessed. They shortly reached the site of the proposed railway, passing through Eran, San Sebastian, San Andero, and Bilbao, at which places they met deputations of the principal inhabitants who were interested in the subject of their journey. At Rhinosa, Stevenson carefully examined the mountain passes and ravines through which a railway could be made. He rose at break of day, and surveyed until the darkness set in, and frequently his resting-place at night was the floor of some miserable hovel. He was thus laboriously occupied for ten days." after which he proceeded across the province of Old Castile towards Madrid, surveying as he went. The proposed plan included the purchase of the Castile Canal, and that property was also surveyed. He next proceeded to El Escorial, situated at the foot of the Guadarrama Mountains, through which he found that it would be necessary to construct two formidable tunnels— added to which he ascertained that the country between El Escorial and Madrid was of a very difficult and expensive character to work through. Taking these circumstances into account, and looking at the expected traffic on the proposed line, Sir Joshua Walmsley, acting under the advice of Mr. Stevenson, offered to construct the line from Madrid to the Bay of Biscay, only on condition that the requisite land was given to the company for the purpose— that they should be allowed every facility for cutting such timber belonging to the crown as might be required for the purposes of the railway, and also that the materials required from abroad for the construction of the line should be admitted free of duty. In return for these concessions, the company offered to clothe and feed several thousands of convicts while engaged in the execution of the earthworks, General Navarez, afterwards Duke of Valencia, received Sir Joshua Walmsley and Mr. Stevenson on the subject of their proposition, and expressed his willingness to close with them, but it was necessary that other influential parties should give their concurrence before the scheme could be carried into effect. The deputation waited ten days to receive the answer of the Spanish government, but no answer of any kind was vouchsafed. The authorities indeed invited them to be present at a Spanish bull-fight, but that was not quite the business Mr. Stevenson had gone all the way to Spain to transact, and the offer was politely declined. The result was that Mr. Stevenson dissuaded his friend from making the necessary deposit at Madrid. Besides, he had by this time formed an unfavourable opinion of the entire project, and considered that the traffic would not amount to one-eighth of the estimate." mr Stevenson was now anxious to be in england during the journey from madrid he often spoke with affection of friends and relatives and when apparently absorbed by other matters he would revert to what he thought might then be passing at home few incidents worthy of notice occurred on the journey homeward but one may be mentioned while travelling in an open conveyance between madrid and Vitoria, the driver urged his mules downhill at a dangerous pace He was requested to slacken speed, but, suspecting his passengers to be afraid, he only flogged the brutes into a still more furious gallop. Observing this, Mr. Stevenson coolly said, "'Let us try him on the other tack. Tell him to show us the fastest pace at which Spanish mules can go.' The rogue of a driver, when he found his tricks of no avail, pulled up, and proceeded at a more moderate speed for the rest of the journey." Urgent business required Mr. Stevenson's presence in London on the last day of November. They travelled, therefore, almost continuously, day and night, and the fatigue consequent upon the journey, added to the privations voluntarily endured by the engineer, while carrying on the survey among the Spanish mountains, began to tell seriously on his health. By the time he reached Paris he was evidently ill, but he nevertheless determined on proceeding. He reached La Havre in time for the Southampton boat, but when on board, pleurisy developed itself, and it was necessary to bleed him freely. During the voyage he spent his time chiefly in dictating letters and reports to Sir Joshua Walmsley, who never left him, and whose kindness on the occasion he gratefully remembered. His friend was struck by the clearness of his dictated composition, which exhibited a vigour and condensation, which to him seemed marvellous. After a few weeks' rest at home, Mr. Stevenson gradually recovered, Though his health remained severely shaken. End of chapter fifteen.